Hello, and thank you for joining us for Commonly Create Wealth podcast. My name is Marcel Mares, and I'm a portfolio strategist for CI Global Asset Management. Today on the podcast, we have John Case. He's a lead portfolio manager for Century Resource Opportunities Class and Century Precious Metals Fund. We're excited to have John on the podcast because he's our internal expert on commodities. And as you are aware, and we've received a ton of questions on this, this is a, this is a very topical space as commodities are a great hedge against inflation. And currently, we're seeing signs of inflation across global economies in many sectors. And there's concerns that maybe this time, inflation will be lasting and more aggressive, given the magnitude of government support, spending, and personal savings. More specifically, John and I will discuss short-term and long-term catalysts for commodities. In particular, we'll talk about the Century Resource Opportunities class. The fund's mandate is to invest in multiple commodities, which differs from a number of funds and ETFs out there that solely focus on one commodity. In John's case, he looks at multiple commodities for opportunities, including lumber, copper, lithium, oil, and gas, to name a few. John will talk about how he actively manages the asset allocation across these commodities and which commodities and companies in this space are currently attractively priced. For the newcomers to the Century Resource Opportunities Fund, the fund is a small, nimble mandate with approximately 50 million in AUM, so John can move in and out of various subsectors fairly quickly. The fund was up about 100% over a one-year period and 20% on year-to-date basis. But despite the strong performance, John believes there's more runway in commodities, given that commodities have underperformed for many years, and given that we're in early innings of the expansion. So with that intro, we'll move on to questions for John. John, why are commodities a good hedge against inflation? And what are some short, long-term tailwinds for commodities? Hey, Marcel. Thanks for having me on. So, uh, you know, resources or commodities, if you haven't been paying attention, uh, as mentioned in your, uh, your, your opening statements, have kind of shot to the forefront uh, in popular press recently on the back of inflation concerns principally. You know, CPI has, has skyrocketed this year from 1% to 4%. Um, there's some base effects in there skewing that number, but seeing long-term expectations also have been rising and, and they've gone from kind of 2% to 2.5% over the last four or five months. So you know, there's a few things to unpack when, when you look at the relationship between commodity demand and inflation. If you think about inflation at its core, what it's caused, it's caused by excess demand that pushes up prices, right? Too many, too many dollars chasing too few goods. Um, the commodity supply, so raw materials, what people are buying, doesn't really have the ability to flex up and down with that demand. Some commodities can, but, but for the most part, they're fairly inelastic over short timeframes. So that a shift in demand can really cause large price increases uh, and that's why an allocation of commodities can provide an inflation hedge. So right now we're kind of seeing three, three real tailwinds uh, as I see it. You know, the first is positioning. So, and you touched on this, if you run a commodity index uh, through a portfolio optimizer, you're going to see that the optimal allocation rises as inflation rises because when inflation's high, the returns historically have been very high. So in the 70s, when inflation was running 9%, you know, commodities were returning 10 to 20% annually. And the S&P was, was returning around three on an annualized basis. And you see that repeat itself even in periods of less extreme inflation. So you saw that in the early 90s and, and early 2000s, even when just there's a, little, a small inflation pulse. Um, so the inflation hedging potential commodities for a portfolio are, are, I think are fairly well documented, well documented and, and well understood. You know, over recent years, you know, let's call it like real, let's be realistic, last like decade and a half really global pressure has been more deflationary than inflationary. 
So, you know, commodities understandably are, are, are significantly underweight across global portfolios. They're out of favor. No one's really looked at them. No one's thought about them. And so I believe that, you know, as asset allocators are now scrambling to reweight the, the portfolios to, you know, to, to get back to at least market weight or potentially overweight, you know, we're poised to see another leg higher in commodities. And I think that that's, that's currently underway. That's the first tailwind, sort of, it's called investor positioning being, being very light. Um, the second tailwind would be, you know, what I call kind of the, the post-COVID new world order. So what, what, what's going to happen post-COVID? What's going to look like? You know, on the physical side of commodities, one of the unanticipated results of COVID was the shift we've seen from services to goods. Um, goods require raw materials, services obviously don't. So they don't really impact commodities. Um, you know, this demand shock of people buying goods, uh, you know, everyone, you know, Amazon's going like gangbusters, um, you know, people renovating their houses. You know, there's a lot of unanticipated consequences of COVID that's, that's pushing up um, commodity prices, supply chains too, right? Like, like supply chains, uh, now people are thinking about duplicating supply chains or having multiple sources of, uh, uh, of raw material in case they can't get access to one because of transportation bottlenecks. So, you know, there's, there's, there's lots of interesting things going on and we're trying to understand how that world's going to look. But I think no matter what way you look at it, it's going to be a tailwind. Um, you know, we know services are going to come back, but, you know, supply chains are probably permanently going to change in a way that's going to be positive for commodities. There's going to be duplication, there's going to be higher inventories, there's going to be hoarding, stockpiling. Um, and you also, you know, people are going to change the way they live their lives. They're probably going to want more space which means more of everything commodity related, right? Um, and so, so, and you're starting to see that people talk about that trend toward de-urbanization, right? Moving to more space, that's inherently commodity intensive. So that's the second tailwind. Uh, and the third would be the sort of fiscal monetary drop, backdrop that we have right now. You know, central banks and monetary authorities have been trying to push up aggregate demand by controlling the money supply for 10 years. It's been a big mystery since the financial crisis for a while, the money that's been printed hasn't really pushed up demand, and we haven't got, had any kind of inflationary impulses. But that money largely sat within the financial system, never really made it out to what you know it's called Main Street. It kind of sat within Wall Street. Now, post-COVID, you know, governments are now engaging in expansionary fiscal policies, not just monetary policy, which they didn't really have a license to do, you know, before this crisis. So they're doing things like direct transfers, you know, and, and that's showing to be much more effective putting cash in people's pockets, pushing up demand, particularly lower income people. And when you think about it, that makes a lot of sense as to why we've had this move from service demand to good demand. Because, you know, when you're paying for a service, you're paying for someone else's time. And the lower income people, um, you know, that time is worth less, right? So when you get, when you get money, you're more likely to buy goods than buy somebody else's time. And so this, this cash that's, that's hitting people's pockets is at that, that lower income levels. And that's, that's why we're seeing this, this boom in, in demand for goods. You know, and, and when I say boom, we are booming, right? Like retail sales right now are 15% higher in dollar terms than pre-COVID. I mean, that, that's a staggering number when you think about it. Um, you know, we got another one and a half trillion stimulus coming. So, so you, you know, the economy is booming, the good demand is booming. And that's a dramatic change for this deflationary period we've been in the last decade. So we'll see if it's enduring, Marcel. But but for you know, one thing's for sure, you know, everyone's lulled into this deflationary environment. We've been, we've been, you know, we've been taught and time and time again, it's just inflation doesn't come whenever we expect it. It's just hasn't 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 shown up. And uh, I think people have, have gotten a little bit complacent thinking that it never will show up. 
know, most money managers today, uh, myself included, you know, they don't, they only know what inflation looks like and feels like and how to invest in that environment from books. Like no one's really lived it. Right. So, uh, you know, I don't think investor portfolios as a result are really prepared for, uh, you know, a scenario where inflation does pick up. That's great, John. Yeah. These are all very valid points and, and thanks for providing a comprehensive review of the, of the sector. And it looks like the setup is very compelling for, uh, for commodities going forward. Now switching to funds, why is now a good time to buy the century resource opportunities class specifically in terms of the mandate and how is, how is this fund positioned? Sure. So you know, I was working in the resource space during the commodity boom in the early 2000s. That lasted seven years. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was, it was one hell of a ride that was really driven by kind of the, the emergence of China. So a long lasting cycle, we were up uh, roughly about 350% from, from the beginning to the end. So, uh, you know, still kind of, you know, another 250% more than, than the hundred percent we're up this year in the resource fund. So, you know, I think there's, there's precedent for lots more room, uh, headroom in terms of performance as well as uh, duration. Uh, if you look at the, the commodity cycle of the 1970s, the inflationary commodity cycle, and I, I obviously wasn't managing money at the time, but that lasts around eight years and it was up about 600%. So when they go, they, they go for more than six months and they go up more than hundred percent when you have sort of an enduring shift and, and kind of global synchronized expansionary, uh, you know, uh, both fiscal and monetary situation, which we do right now. Um, right. So, so it's, I think all the, all the preparation that is there for that type of uh, commodity cycle, you know, I think the second thing to think about resources as a category is misleading. It's about a dozen sectors classified as one. So the main ETF that tracks the space has would have varying weights towards energy and grains, industrial metals, you know, livestock even, and, and some non-grain softs like cocoa and sugar, right? So, you know, each of those sectors that I just listed would have like a dozen products within it. So you're you're buying like 50 different commodity baskets when you're buying an ETF, and and you know a rising tide might lift them all. You know, as commodities, because they're all sort of, you know, uh, real assets that'll reprice themselves as, you know, uh, currencies depreciate. But, you know, there's something that's going to do better than other than others. Um, each commodity would have their own supply, demand, drivers, and dynamics. So, you know, in the 19, you know, a good example that in the 1970s, um, Marcel, the, the Goldman Sachs Commodity Index, which is sort of one of the, the premier commodity indexes, it returned 10% annualized where the Dow Jones Commodity Index returned 24% annualized over eight years, both commodity indexes, right? So it's a huge spread between the two of, them, two of them. And then the 2000s, it was the opposite, right? The Goldman Sachs Commodity Index was up 18% annualized over, the, over that kind of seven-year period, whereas the Dow Jones was only up 10%. So you, so you get big differences depending on what's working within the commodity conference. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I have a framework that I use when I evaluate um, investments for the resource fund and how we look at the resource landscapes really shaped around three different drivers that I think drive commodity demand and price demand as a result over time. So the first thing that we look at is demographics. So at its core, demand for commodities is, is per capita consumption times the amount of people consuming goods, right? The population. The population growth in developed economies is negligible. So on the demographic side, you've got no tailwind. In, in, in developed markets. You know, 94% of global population growth over the next 10 years is going to come from emerging markets. So, so we've got to start looking at what does emerging market consume and what will they need more of to accommodate growing populations? That's the first. The second is developing economies. So 
GD per capita, it's not static, it's changing, all right, every day in emerging markets, you know, individuals there are getting wealthier and they're, they're getting dragged up of, out of low income into middle income. Your GDP per capita in emerging markets is going to go to from five to $10,000 US uh, GDP per capita over the next 10 years. But China is going from 10 to 20. So as people get wealthier, the types of goods they want changes. And one of the first things, uh, a story I like, one of the first things that a Southeast uh, Chinese individual you know, did in the early 2000s when they got a bit of money um, and, and at a low income is buy an air conditioner, right? Um, because of you know, the crippling humidity you get uh, there. So, you know, and that's, that's a major, major source of copper demand, right? So just, just when you think about the implications, oh, okay, now you've got 25 million air conditioners that you didn't have last year that you have to, you have to build this year. So those are the types of things you got to think about. As people get wealthier, where does that drive increased intensity of usage? And if you're getting a population growing and wealth that's driving new habits and higher intensity of certain type of, types of commodities, you know, the two combined really make a powerful driver price. So the third thing, so we've got demographics, developing economies, and the third thing we think about is disruption, right? And, that, and that's going on, that, that's been accelerated over the last three, four years. Um, you know, when I, you know, we started thinking about disruptive events three, four years ago, we, you know, there was really at the time, it was sort of like a little bit, you know, long dated, right? Electric vehicles and some of the things that, are, that were happening that were kind of interesting on the technology front. Uh, and that's just accelerated over the last few years. So we have, now we have an, an energy transition we have to think about um, with the growth of renewables and, and decarbonization really driven by, by Europe. But now it seems like the rest of the world is getting on board. And that's, you know, by 2030, renewable growth is going to grow, renewables, power generation is going to grow four times. You know, solar is, you know, the dominant driver of that. But that, that has all kinds of raw material impacts when something grows, when a sector grows four times, you know, 4X over 10 years. You got electric vehicles. We're going from three million units to thirty-five million units over the next ten years. So you're 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 going growing probably somewhere between fifteen and twenty times. Uh, sorry, between you know let's call it ten times. The battery industry is going to have to find and extract an untold amount of new metals to feed uh, a tenfold increase in the in the number of electric vehicles in the world road, and, and pricing as a result is going to have to move higher across many of those raw materials to incentivize that supply. And then the third kind of disruptive thing that I'm thinking about is, is as I mentioned earlier, you know, what's going to be the lasting impacts to how people live post-COVID in developed markets? Uh, in the U.S., you're starting to see a shift from sort of multi-unit residential housing to single-family, uh, and the recent housing stats, and, and a sort of what we call like a de-urbanization, so move out of cities and areas more space. Uh, you know, enabled by the sort of adoption of work from home. So, you know, if that's enduring, which which I think it will be at least, you know, while our memories are still fresh of this of this pandemic, uh, that's got that's got implications as well, right? Like a single family home consumes three times the amount of lumber as as higher density buildings, and you're obviously seeing that impact in the lumber price. So, so that that kind of sums up how I think about the space, how I segmented and some of the opportunities uh, that we're thinking about on the structure on the disruption side uh, of how to you know, take advantage. That's great. Uh, so John, if we drill down further uh, into the fund, can you briefly highlight uh, holding maybe each of the portfolio segments you like over the next six to 12 months? Sure. Okay. <clears throat> so I, I'd probably start with, uh, you know, on the energy transition front, um, you know, I, I, we, we like first quantum. Uh, it's uh, one of the world's uh, you know best pure plays on copper exposure. 
Uh, main assets or covert of Panama, it's ramping up uh, in Panama, not surprising. Uh, it's going to be a top 10 copper mine by the end of the, by the, end of the year with a 35-year mine life. Uh, so it's it's gonna it's gonna be around for a long time, many different body cycles. You know, no matter what part of the energy energy transition you look at, the answer is a shift from fossil fuels to electricity. Like that, that's that's what's going on at, at its core, right? For decarbonization. No matter what form that takes, it's gonna require more copper as a facilitator due to copper's conductivity and use in wiring. Uh, you know, so you're replacing fossil fuels with, with copper wires. So, uh, you know, a, a unit, like think about it this way, a unit of renewable power requires four times more copper than conventional power generation. And you see the same thing in electric vehicle versus a conventional combustion engine. So, you know, and, and when we look at the copper landscape, really you want to own incumbent producers. They're, they're the ones that stand to benefit because there's just no projects on the shelf that can deliver into the type of copper growth that we're going to need to, to generate over the next 10 years. So that'd be one kind of targeted towards energy transition decarbonization. Uh, a name I like is called uh, Galaxy. In Australia, they're in, in the midst of merging with a company called Oracobra. Both are lithium producers. You know, lithium is an interesting metal. Um, it's kind of fallen out of favor over the last three years um, because it had a bit of a, a bit of a price spike and then, and then came off pretty pretty suddenly. It's an interesting metal because it needs to grow at around a twenty percent growth rate over the next decade. To deliver into you know you know what's required for you know Volkswagen and Tesla and the list goes on as far as uh, new electric vehicle platforms you know lithium ore is easy to mine and and that's why it got oversupplied pretty quickly a number of years ago but you know the conversion of lithium lithium chemicals is actually quite specialized and you see you see sustainable uh, margins in it's sort of the, what we call like the downstream processing part of the the value chain and then it's a challenging process to do there's only a few people that do it. And I see that as one of the best opportunities to maximize the full economic value of the resource, which I think is going to grow, right? If you want lithium production to grow, price is going to have to go up. Um, so these two companies are coming together. They're going to create the, the top five largest producer of lithium raw materials. Uh, so it's going to be globally relevant. It's not now, but, it, but in, you know, large generalist investors will need to pay attention to this company post-merger. Uh, it's going to have a great pro growth profile. And they're expanding, most importantly, over the next five years into downstream processing to transition just from being a miner to being an integrated supplier of lithium chemicals. And I think that that, that is really the crux of our investment thesis in this one. And we expect that that, that um, you know, new combination, new focus on, on the full value chains to, to trigger a, a re-rating in the share price. So that's uh, that's a that's a lithium producer that's kind of ties in with the, what we see is like the electrical ve electric vehicle disruption or dynamic. The third name that uh, you know I'd probably highlight it in our portfolio that I, I really like over the next six twelve months is something called Interfor. Uh, this would be targeted towards what I mentioned earlier about you know what are the lasting impacts of people live with COVID and and certainly you know one thing that sticks out to me is there's more space right or or remodeling and redoing the space you have with, with kind of this work from home which which I, I think is going to be enduring so at least partially. So Interfor is the fourth largest North American lumber producer, dominant position in the U.S. South. Uh, for those that don't know, the U.S. South is where 55% of the homes in the U.S. are built. You know, lumber has had a, had a hell of a run. It looks like it's, it's, it's ready to roll and come, come down here to sort of more normalized levels, but the margins these companies make on even a lower level is just phenomenal. Um, so I think, you know, lumber producers might be, might be under pressure as, as we come to the kind of end of the summer here and, and building season winds down, but on a six to 12 month view, you know, I think lumber levels off at a level a lot higher than people expected. 
given the strong housing starts we're seeing. I don't see that letting up in a post-COVID world. There's lean inventories, both of, of, of lumber and of, of housing, and there's really an inability to surge capacity in North Americans. So in North America, so I, I, I got all the, the recipes there for, for a really sustained cycle uh, for a number of years in, in, in lumber. Um, so six to 12 months from now, I think, I think the equities are higher and that's going to be underpinned by, by free cash flow. That's, that's, uh, I think it's really, you're really starting to see it last quarter. And again, this quarter, I think you'll see it. Um, and that'll drive dividends and buybacks. And I think that, that ultimately ends up with a higher share price, uh, six to 12 months from now. So that's, those would be the three names I would highlight. Okay. Th- those are all really good examples that highlight how you see the world and how you incorporate that in, in your uh, in your fund. So just to wrap it up, John, thank you uh, very much for joining us today. We appreciate your insight on commodities and the Century Resource Opportunities class. As John mentioned, commodities are great hedge against inflation. Commodity cycles are multi-year. This is the beginning and demand will likely persist. All commodities, John said, are not created equally and an active manager like John can take an advantage of mispricing in various segments to add value to a portfolio. For the listeners, if you want to know more about Century Resource Opportunities class, check out CI.com and join us next week for another update on CGAM funds. Thank you and have a great day. This podcast is provided as a general source of information and should not be considered personal, legal, accounting, tax, or investment advice, or construed as an endorsement or recommendation of any entity or security discussed. Investors should seek the advice of professionals prior to implementing any changes to their investment. Certain statements in this podcast are forward-looking that are predictive in nature, depend upon, or refer to future events or conditions. Forward-looking statements are subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those set forth. Although the forward-looking statements contained herein are based upon what CI Global Asset Management and the Portfolio Manager believe to be reasonable assumptions, neither CI Global Asset Management nor the Portfolio Manager can assure that actual results will be consistent with these forward-looking statements. Certain statements contained in this podcast are based in whole or in part on information provided by third parties, and CI Global Asset Management has taken reasonable steps to ensure their accuracy. Market conditions may change, which may impact the information contained in this podcast. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses all may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of return are the historical annual compounded total returns net of fees and expenses payable by the fund, including changes in security value and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions, and do not take into account sales, redemption, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns. Mutual funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently, and past performance may not be repeated.